Hi, everyone. This is Hannah once again with the PSA at the beginning of an episode. Just popping in to say that this episode contains discussions of eating disorders, anti-Asian and anti-Black racism. So if you'd rather not hear about any of those topics, feel free to skip this episode. Thank you. Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of those who thought Mary Kay and Ashley were three whole people for far too long. I'm Hannah Leach. And I'm Audrey Leach. We are the sister filmmaking duo, also known as Two Ping Pictures, and we have not stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today, we are talking about 2004's New York Minute, starring Mary-Kate and Ashley. She's in Manhattan at a video shoot. Your speech doesn't start until three o'clock. That gives you three and a half hours. Four and a half. Same thing. Warner Brothers Pictures presents Twins. Hi! We haven't spent the day together in years. Mary Kate Olsen, Ashley Olsen, Eugene Levy. Woo! Do you have anything to say about this movie today? (laughs) Well, for the video viewers, before we get into it, I just want to mention. Um, these beautiful earrings that we have on that were sent to us by Alien Brats. <laughs> that is the store name. You can find earrings such as these on Etsy, Instagram, Depop. I think she's everywhere. I think she's on all the platforms at yes. Alien Brats. My earrings are... Uh, feature Brace Face, the cartoon woman of our dreams. I haven't watched Brace Face in such a long time, but these earrings are inspiring me to rewatch it. So maybe yeah. that will be coming up on Sleepover at some point. And mine say hottie. <laughs> they say hottie? Hot, yeah. <laughs> My earrings do indeed say hottie. <laughs> hottie. And I have one that uh, I have a pair that's like the Heinz colored ketchup from back in like the very early 2000s. I think it's the purple one. Yeah. So you got to go check them out because any niche interest you have from the early 2000s or late 90s there are most likely a pair of earrings that will represent that niche interest on her site. Like (laughs) I literally now own freaks and geeks earrings. (laughs) So... New York Minute is an interesting movie. We're obviously going to talk about it, but um, do you think we should just get straight to the facts or do we have any comments we want to unleash before we get to the facts? I mean, I just have one general comment and that is oof. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so normally uh, when we record these episodes, we actually break in the middle and watch the movie, but, uh, you know, Audrey and I are busy women. It doesn't always work out that way, so... uh, We both pre-watched it this time, which is going to make our uh, attempt at objectivity, our attempt (laughs) at objectivity uh, in the facts a little bit challenging. But, you know, we're going to do our best. So why don't we just get into the facts? Rain it in, hold it back until the second section. Yes, yes, we will. 
So New York Minute was released in theaters on May 7th, 2004. It was directed by Denny Gordon, who is in fact a woman. She also directed What a Girl Wants, similar genre, similar era. Uh, She also, I just thought it was funny that she directed one episode of AJ and the Queen, which is the RuPaul (laughs) show where it's like RuPaul and the kid and it got canceled Canceled. and like everyone always (laughs) dunks on it for having gotten canceled. Uh, Otherwise, she's directed like a ton of TV. And according to her IMDb bio, she was one of the first women to graduate from the Yale School of Drama with an MFA in directing. So... If I could snap. I just uh, can't snap. So good for her. Good for her. Um, there were a lot of producers attached to this movie. There were like eight people listed as a producer, which makes sense considering that it was a Mary-Kate and Ashley movie. But the uh, the highlights, in my opinion, include Denise Denovi, who we talked about when we did the Heathers episode with Yara, um, the Heathers versus the Craft episode. She's very much a woman of repute. She produced such classics such as the 2019 Little Women, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 1 and 2, What a Girl Wants, A Walk to Remember, The 1994 Little Women, Practical Magic, Edward Scissorhands, movies that really live in our hearts. Uh, so shout out to Denise Denovi. In fact, in the opening credits, it even says a Denise Denovi production. So good for her. Then, uh, the twins, obviously, Mary-Kate and Ashley were producers on this. I'm pretty sure that this was dual star in association with Denise Denovi. And dual star, of course, was their production company that their parents created and then like bequeathed onto Mary-Kate and Ashley when they turned 18. There's like six other producers and it looks like all of them except for one are women though, which is cool and kind of rare. This movie was written by Emily Fox, who is known as a writer and producer. Uh, She was a writer on Hindsight and Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce (laughs) and uh, a producer on both those shows and also the series of unfortunate events, Netflix series and Zoe's extraordinary playlist, which I don't know what that is, but I just hate I the hate name. It. No, I it? watched the pilot and it was awful. It was, it was literally terrible. I know that there are some people out there who enjoy it and we probably have some listeners that enjoy it. And I would love to know why I really would love <laughs> to know why. What is it? Because about? if you're looking, if, it's literally this girl who hears and sees musical numbers and it's like not actually happening. I mean, the, the, the main issue I feel like is that if I want a musical number, I'll probably just resort to an actual musical or like Glee. <laughs> resort to an actual musical as if it's like your last option. <laughs> no, that's not the wording I meant. Like I'll watch an actual musical if I want yes. a musical number. Yes, and I totally get that. Got it. Okay, well. We're saying fuck you to Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. We have that noted. (laughs) And uh, this woman, Emily Fox, also was a writer and producer on Jane by Design. I don't know what that is either. Okay, like Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Jane by Design, and Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce all seem like shows that I would be like embarrassed to watch. Yeah, and like sorry if you watch them. I'm sorry if you like those shows. Just the <laughs> titles are really like cringy to me. Yeah. And then we also had the writing duo of Adam Cooper and Bill Collage, is how I'm choosing to pronounce his last name. Uh, they are a writer duo who are known for Assassin's Creed and Allegiant, so I don't really know what they were doing writing New York Minute. 
But um, they they Neither. did that. It's attributed <laughs> to the three of them. That's questionable. It is questionable. So now we're arriving at the plot synopsis. Audrey, would you care to take us away? Oh, wait, I have one thing to say, though, before you read it. When you pull up the IMDb page for New York Minute, it's described in these three categories, comedy, crime, and family. (laughs) And I just thought that that was really funny, especially because going into rewatching this movie, I remembered very, very, very little about what it actually contained. So I was like, hmm, interesting combination. Anyway, Audrey, what is this movie about? So here is the plot synopsis. One day in New York City, Jane Ryan tries out for an overseas college program. Her twin sister, Roxy, schemes to meet her favorite punk rockers and a series of mishaps throws their day into chaos. The usually adversarial sisters decide to unite against the forces around them so both can accomplish their goals. A suspect plot synopsis. Yeah, the just everything about that, I my brain was was struggling a little bit. <laughs> to yes. Read. <laughs> yes. Oh man. All right. And as for taglines, we've got one here, pretty predictable, but it is anything can change in a New York minute. So bad. <laughs> It's also, to me, like, they never say New York Minute. They never talk about a New York Minute. It's just called New York Minute. I hate it when titles are like that. I mean, a lot of times that's respectable when that happens, but maybe not in this genre. In this movie, it's like... Yeah, okay, in this genre. Yes, I think it's lame (laughs) in this genre. In general, if it was that on the nose every single time, that would be weird. Right. (laughs) That's a good point. Okay, so now we have the cast. And um, again, when I first compiled this list, I really wasn't sure who was an important character and who wasn't. So this was a little bit arbitrary, but I went back in and added someone else. So first of all, we have Mary-Kate as Roxy Ryan. Uh, Mary-Kate had like a slightly longer acting career than Ashley did. Uh, She was on Beastly in 2011 and I looked up some scenes from it and it was really weird looking. And she was also uh, on Weeds in 2007. She was like a legit character on that show. And, uh, And it goes without saying, New York Minute was the last time that the Olsen twins appeared on screen together. So this was their last movie their last it brings co-production tears to my their own eyes. I know it's really sad um then next up we have Ashley as Jane Ryan and uh the last thing she was in she made apparently like a cameo in this movie called the jerk theory which I sent Audrey the link to the trailer but I don't know if she watched it did you watch it no I didn't I'll just tell you briefly what it was about because it's really noteworthy this is movie that came out in 2009 and it's literally a nice guys finish last movie. And it's like the jerk theory is like, if you're mean to girls, they'll like be more into you. Yeah. And it looked like extremely painful. And I don't know why she would have made an appearance in it, but apparently she did. Perhaps a favor. (laughs) Yes. Perhaps she was like uh, friends with the director or the writer or something. And she was like, you can throw my name on that billing if you really want. And uh, yeah, so 
that's kind of the acting careers of Ashley and Mary-Kate separately, but together they starred in 193 episodes of Full House, um, like countless movies and straight to like tape home releases through Dual Star. Um, and they were extremely famous and continue to be extremely famous. And you know that if you're listening to this podcast, but we have a short history of the Olsen twins we will get to later that I think will shed some light a bit on like the context of their fame, which I find to be interesting. Anyway, next we have Eugene Levy as Max, also an extremely famous person, kind of someone in this movie where you see him and you're like, why is he in this? Him and Andy Richter. Yeah. Yeah, um, but he's known for Schitt's Creek the most right now, I think, is definitely his thing he's hanging his hat on. But he was in Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, American Pie. Uh, He's just like an extremely ubiquitous American actor, and he's been in over 60 movies, and he's age 75. So he's also blessed in Josie and the Pussycats. Does he have a cameo? Cameo role. He plays himself. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually saw that when I was making the list, but I, like, couldn't remember what it was exactly. But, yeah, he's that kind of famous where he can star as himself in a cameo role and people know who he is. Next up, we have Andy Richter as Benny, potentially one of the worst conceived characters in anything Anything I've ever we've seen. covered and anything in general. Yes. Uh, also. He's known to Audrey and I as Conan O'Brien's sidekick. Uh, I would say we grew up in a Conan O'Brien household. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> um, and he also was on Arrested Development and he's been in like a ton of TV stuff. Uh, writer, actor, funny man. He's kind of like... Uh, like he and Jack Black come from the same planet, but they're like not the same. That's kind of yeah. how I think of it. Um, not to invoke the name of Jack Black casually because yeah. how dare it's not you? casual here. It's not casual here. And then the person I added to the list was Jared Padalecki as Trey, because when he came on screen, I was like, fuck, he looks so familiar. Uh, and he plays Roxy's love interest in the movie. But he was on Supernatural, and more relevant to us, he was Dean on Gilmore Girls. So, significant. And then, when I was on IMDb and I hadn't seen the movie, I saw all of Simple Plan on there, and I was like, where are we going? And then I saw (laughs) Bob Saget, and I was like, you know that's got to be a stupid cameo. And I was right, ultimately. So, that was, uh, that's the cast, pretty much. Uh, Audrey, do you want to take us into some of these numbers? Yeah. So the overall budget was roughly $30 million. The box office opening weekend, ooh, <laughs> I know, was $5,962,106. And the overall worldwide gross was $21,289,826. So... That might have just murdered Mary-Kate and Ashley's movie career. (laughs) That's actually such a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, um, because at the end of the day, it is a business. And they know, Uh, because they are business women. They are business women. And they said, if we're not going to make, if we're not going to make our money back, then we're not uh, reliable stars here. (laughs) Yeah. And you know... 
one thing that occurred to me when it came to the money in this movie too was like, and I was going to bring this up later, but since it's coming up now, just like the ruthlessly expensive on location shooting for everything and having an animal the whole time and Mm -hmm. having Eugene Levy, who probably cost a lot of money. I was just like, why would you let your script be this bad and spend this much money? Yeah. Oh, we can, yeah, we can talk about it later, but yeah, I have more to say on that. Yeah. We'll come back. Um, I'm sure you can imagine what the critics had to say about this one, but Audrey, do you want to fill us in? Yeah. So there's an 11% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's one of the worst I've ever seen. I know. Um, really, really, really bad. It's This whole thing is kind of echoing like the Material Girls um, story yes, as well. Yes, that's really true. Um, but yeah, it's the same, same type of vibe here. Um, the critical consensus was feels more like a calculated product designed to expand the Olsen's brand than an actual movie. Also, it contains ethnic stereotyping and sexual innuendo. Yeah. Um, we'll speak more on it later, but it is horrendous, horrendous, um, worse than material girls even. I don't Um, know if it's worse than Material Girls. I I think that they are maybe, they're really battling it out for worst ever. (laughs) But I think they were uh, bad in different ways as far as the ethnic stereotyping goes. Yeah. Um, And then the audience score was 47%. And let's just acknowledge that that like 30% difference between critic and audience is purely due to love for Mary-Kate and Ashley and, you know, feeling love and nostalgic towards them, even though they weren't nostalgic yet at the time. But they were a little bit because people knew them their whole life. Basically, kids did. And so we picked some critic reviews here. This one just really left me with more questions than answers, so I felt the need to include it. I can't fathom that even the dirty old men will find much to like with this film. From Richard Propes of The Independent Critic. In 2020, which really is confusing to me. I don't know what that means. Uh, Feels disgusting, but it it piqued my interest. And then, uh, Audrey, do you want to read the next two? Yeah, so the second one is separately the characters are annoying. Together, it's unnervingly like watching one actress playing twins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And then the third one is admittedly in all this stupidity, there are a couple of laugh out loud moments, but these do not make up for the fact that mediocrity is a poor replacement for talent and comic timing. groundbreaking take there mediocrity versus talent and comic timing just (laughs) so normally we would talk about celebrity gossip of the era right now and we are going to talk about that sort of but I really wanted to just give a little bit of context to Mary-Kate and Ashley's career I actually thought this was our first Mary-Kate and Ashley movie that we did and then Audrey gently reminded me that we did do Passport to Paris but um you know I was curious and I find the Olsen twins to be extremely interesting in the way that they have sort of become these like phantoms of uh, Hollywood existence. Like no one ever sees them in real life. They're never in things. They never do interviews. Like I just, and they don't have social media. I love it for them. I think it's, I think it's perfect. And I love that anytime that they are seen, it's in New York 
all black, really interesting fashion and smoking a cigarette. Yeah, every time. <laughs> and they look it. like, they kind of look like dolls too when you see them. Yeah. Like kind of like spooky dolls. So keep that mental image in your mind. That's them now. But um, so everyone knows that Mary-Kate and Ashley got famous from Full House, which was a really long running sitcom. Uh, and they were cast in Full House at six months old. Think about how little a six-month-old is. And then they began filming at nine months. And basically, they were just, like, launched to extreme fame pretty much immediately. They both played Michelle Tanner, switching off, uh, like, who who played her in what scene or based off of, like, what kid had their shit together in the given moment. Uh, so they were famous actresses, but almost more importantly, they were like a huge brand through Dual Star. So I picked this little excerpt from the Wikipedia page for the Olsen twins that I felt like was really worth hearing. So I'm just going to read it. Mary-Kate and Ashley, and of course it's Wikipedia, so some shit might be wrong. I'm sorry. Mary-Kate and Ashley were popular figures in the preteen market during the late 90s and early 2000s. How appropriate for us. Their names and likenesses extended not only to movies and videos, but to clothes, shoes, purses, hats, books, CDs, and cassette tapes, fragrances and makeup, magazines, video and board games, dolls, posters, calendars, and even telephones and CD players, with a market share made up mostly of tweens. The sisters became co-presidents of Dual Star on their 18th birthday in 2004, which was right around the time that this movie came out. This movie came out like a month before their 18th birthday, because they are Geminis. He he. How appropriate. Upon taking control of the company, Mary-Kate and Ashley made moves to secure the future of the company by releasing products that appealed to the teen market. The Olsons have appeared on the Forbes Celebrity 100 list since 2002. In 2007, Forbes ranked them collectively as the 11th richest women in entertainment with an estimated net worth of $100 million. So... They'd made these movies, but they also just sold shit. That's kind of always been their thing. And where the celebrity gossip comes in, in my mind, is like, I remember I learned what anorexia was because of Mary-Kate Olsen. Do you remember that, Audrey? Um, not like super specifically, but yeah. As we've talked about before, I had my really intense collaging phase around 2004. So I was like always reading People Magazine and like InStyle and like Star and that kind of stuff. And tabloid culture was still really raging at the time. And they were like really convinced that Mary-Kate had an eating disorder. And like, I mean, we, we don't know, but most likely she probably did. Your life has to be so bizarre if you're them. But um, I found this interview that was like one of the last public interviews they did as a acting duo with Oprah, where Oprah like puts them on the spot about what size they are. And it's really, really uncomfortable. And you can just see how they were already kind of wired to be private people and shit like that would just like push them even further towards being super private people. All right, you know, there's a new rumor that's recently surfaced has really upset you, right? Uh, you know, the one about eating. Yeah, you know, people are going to write what they want to write. I, we try not to read the good or the bad mm-hmm. because it just kind of comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. You know, either you're too fat, you're too skinny, and people are just going to write what they... they what size do. are you, by the way? Size? Yeah, I was like, I'm not sure. sure. I You're not sure? Girls and, oh, you know. that's so interesting. <laughs> And you know what else is interesting about those 
early 2000s interviews with Oprah or Diane Sawyer or, you know, women that are really, really famous and successful as interviewers, where obviously like times have changed a lot, but you would just looking back at it now, you would just think that they would have a little bit more like awareness of the questions. Like, I'm just wondering if there were outside sources that kind of made them ask questions like this, or if they were really in control of what questions they were going to ask and what they're interested in, because you would never catch Oprah. Oprah won't really, she asks hard questions, but she doesn't ask, uh, questions that cross a line like you can just you can you can tell how things have evolved and so watching that it's just like height the height of awkwardness Mm -hmm. and it's interesting like especially Diane Sawyer um her interview with like Brittany and her some of her old interviews are terrifying to watch Yeah, that's actually, I was going to bring that up because um, I listened to this other podcast. This shouldn't surprise anyone, but I listened to The C Word, hosted by Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett, and they basically tell the stories of, like, female celebrity downfall. That's pretty much the premise of it. And they talk all the time about how the Diane Sawyer interview was like the make or break for damage control back in the day. Like you would go on there and like, like talking about like the Whitney Houston ones where she asks her about doing drugs, like all that stuff. Like you could really help yourself a lot or hurt yourself a lot based off of a Diane Sawyer interview. Um, and I feel like there had to have been producers that put Oprah and Diane, like, up to asking questions like this. But also mm-hmm. I think that, like, there was a lot more internalized misogyny back then. Like, if you saw, like, a beautiful, thin, rich woman, like, doing really well, like, of course you're going to want to, like, poke holes in, like, the facade of her, like, perfection or <clears throat> yeah. whatever you see about her that bothers you. And also, like, at that time, there was no other real media outlet where mm-hmm. the per- where that star was going to, like, come clean or, like, expose themselves or, like, say the truth. So, right. you know, it's like all that tabloid action going on and then there's the interview. And so that's what everyone's going to tune in for is this, like, absolutely toxic, terrible headlines they've been reading for months. Right. And in this Oprah interview that I'm referring to, she is really rude to them like she makes fun of them for like everything that they are I mean everything everybody was on Oprah's side at the time you know like I feel like the audience's mentality was with Oprah there yeah absolutely I mean she was the person who was like in people's homes every afternoon for years and years like you're gonna side with her and also this is not meant to be like shitting on Oprah time, like Oprah's an important person. Um, But just this interview is really painful to watch. So anyway, all of that in mind, Mary-Kate and Ashley launched The Row, which was their first um, like high-end, non, like you're going to find this shit in Kohl's line. Um, And when they first sold it, according to this article that I found on E!, this is an excerpt from it. We sold it at first with no label, Mary-Kate admitted to Women's Wear Daily in 2016. Only certain people knew it was us behind it. We didn't do any press. Our idea, 
because we had been in the branding industry for a very long time was if the product's good, it will sell. And it worked. In the 13 years since the launch, they've introduced three more lines, including the wildly popular Elizabeth and James. And they've won like a million awards for all of their like design and business achievements. And then another excerpt from this article, they notoriously avoided the rise of social media and what presence there might have been on there to offer their brand. We've spent our whole lives trying to not let people have that accessibility. So it would go against everything we've done in our lives to not be in the public. We're used to being on the other side of the camera and managing the process. So it's hard for us to do photo shoots now. Mary Kate said, that's why you have models. (laughs) I love that. I love I that for them. They're like, actually, you you all can just shut up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, we don't care. Yeah, I love that they're like, yeah, we're never getting on camera again. We pay people to do that now. That is yeah. not what we're here for. Oh, so now you're caught up on a brief history of Mary-Kate and Ashley. Uh, Audrey, tell me what you remembered about this movie. Well, I actually have no clue when I saw it the first time. This is one of those movies where I'm just like, I know I didn't see it like as recent as college for the first time, but I don't know when. So I'm guessing it was somewhere between, (laughs) it's a pretty broad range, somewhere between like fifth grade and like 10th grade, (laughs) somewhere in there. Yes. Um, I think I can illuminate where you saw it because I remember where we saw it. Oh, okay. Which was we watched it at a, I think at a sleepover or like a long hang at Aaron and Julia's house, who are our cousins. Um, And I remember like the Avril Lavigne reference a lot because when I saw this movie, I was a huge Avril Lavigne stan, which I forgot to mention for our video viewers, I do have... My Avril Lavigne uh, crop top on for that very reason. And I actually found this in the wild like five years ago. So I'm proud that I found this ever in my life. Anyway, so I remembered that. I remembered so clearly someone falling on scaffolding into a dumpster. And uh, I remember being like, why are they being chased by Eugene Levy? And I remember most potently that... Jane and Roxy, <clears throat> they're twins. One of them is like kind of rocker. The other one is like a good girl. And I was immediately thinking about the Bratz twins that Audrey and I had. Their names were Phoebe and Roxy, but Roxy was the name yeah. for for like the cool, like proto Liz Gillies in a tween thing type person. Um. Would love to know Mattel's thoughts behind why Roxy was the name. It Imagine wasn't Mattel. Getting... It wasn't. I don't know. Who, I forget who it was. Um, oh, MGA. MGA. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, we know about the beef. We know about the long <laughs> legal legal battle. Yeah. And you know what other movie um, sisters fall into a dumpster in? Uh, Material Girls. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe this movie was secretly the blueprint for Material Girls, to which I have to ask, why would you ever use this as your blueprint? (laughs) I don't know. Financially, socially, you know, economically, everything. It was not smart. Nothing about it. Not smart. Um, So I think we've said quite enough for now. If you have not seen New York Minute, 
or you haven't watched it in a long time, it is legally available on HBO Max right now. So you can watch it on there. I'm sure you can find it somewhere else. Um, But go give it a watch. Prepare yourself for what you were about to witness. And we will uh, meet back here to discuss. Some cultural whiplash. Yes. (laughs) We will be right back. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Okay, we are back, and it is time to do a a majestic swan dive into the pond pond into the lake of trash (laughs) new york minute (laughs) the lake of trash honestly it's like a it's like a central park pond of trash like that is what it is um I guess we should start with what we appreciated about it, as we like to do. We like to front load our positive comments and then just get into it. You know, there are a lot of car montages, like them being in the car and there's music playing. They're seeing things. They're having quirky antics in the car. That is my favorite. I love I love Mary Kate Nashley car montages. Um. I appreciated that Dean from Gilmore Girls was there. I didn't remember that. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fun. Um, I did actually think that Mary-Kate and Ashley's acting was improved upon (laughs) compared to some of their past work. That is saying something. But you know that work. (laughs) you know the moment where they're like standing in Times Square and they're like I hate you and they're like I hate you I was like hey is this great no but I think (laughs) that it's better than how they would have done it years prior like I think it actually was improved upon yeah I can see that um I thought the simple plan integration was like extremely heavy-handed but fun you know yes I I had questions about that just in the sense of like 
Who was paying who? Were they paying Simple yeah. Plan or was Simple Plan paying them? And were they planning on doing further branding with Simple Plan? Like there had to be a business concept there. <laughs> they but probably I just had an know. album. Probably. Something like that. Maybe the video for the song that they were playing at the thing is actually like a weird supercut of like New York Minute and them playing. Yeah, probably. Although I don't know why they would do that because the audience for New York Minute and the audience for Simple Plan, there is some overlap, but there's not, it's not an exact match. No. Um, Another observation I had was that Eugene Levy was really giving me like Steve Carell in Sleepover. Yes. Like it was like the same type of, of character, but I think Steve was much funnier in sleepover like yeah and he wasn't taken completely seriously as the as like a villain yeah so i don't know um i love the i heart ny outfits <laughs> i think that that is the moment that is the moment <laughs> in the movie when they finally come out of the porta potties in their twin looks you know we were ready for that. We were expecting that. Um, we have more NJ Transit representation in this movie. Yes, I had that same thought. But it's not <laughs> yeah. NJ Transit. It's the LIRR this time. Yeah, it's the LIRR. But I was that's hearkening back to our very first episode ever. Um, Confessions of a Teenage Drama it's a Queen. Harken. Yeah. <laughs> um, the term corporate when when she goes but a more corporate bling literally awful yeah (laughs) but I was like it was sort of funny just how how absolutely clueless she was coming off like it, it was sort of funny yeah um and then other than that I'm sure you'll talk about Avril Lavigne appreciation but um the moment that I most enjoyed in this entire movie was at the 58 minute, 14 second mark. And that is where um, I saw my street and also my apartment. <laughs> um, like where I live now is in the movie. And uh, the end of my street is super recognizable because there's uh, like a bridge where the train the the um path train goes on and um so as soon as I saw the bridge I was like oh that is my street um so it was cool to see my street in 2004 that is good that certainly falls under things we would appreciate yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know it kind of just struck me and maybe we'll come back to this later but and I guess I appreciate this this is like probably one of the first like kids movies that super New York themed that was post 9-11 and Mm. they didn't have any like weird like nationalism moments well there was like racism but it wasn't like it didn't feel like a reaction to 9-11 which was no interesting it could have it felt pre 9-11 honestly but okay things I appreciated their bedrooms in the beginning are awesome I really loved that Roxy had her excuse database in the beginning, too. Mm -hmm. That felt like something that I would have made up when I was, like, 12. Uh, And I appreciated that. Um, Their jaws, their jaw lines are insane. (laughs) I was like, they are kind of bobbleheads, but they're beautiful. 
and it's yeah. totally fine. In fact, I envy their level of, of bobbleheadedness. <laughs> um, I thought that when I have a lot of stuff from the very beginning because that was kind of the high point for me. Yeah, it's kind um, of the best part. When they get in the car for the first time and the Donna starts playing, I was like, wow, a kind of deep uh, soundtrack choice. Interesting. I thought the Department of Truancy was like a really funny concept because it's like so stupid. Like it, and it yeah. doesn't exist. That's like the whole point um, yeah. that he's made it up. Do we even know what his character no, is? I forget. Just call him Eugene. Okay, Eugene. <laughs> his uh, his concept was funny, and I enjoyed that. I also thought, I didn't really write this down, but I thought that they did a really good job in the beginning of explaining or, like, making everyone's motivations really clear. Like, the reason why Eugene Levy was chasing her is because he wanted to get reinstated as a cop and he felt like if he found her, he would be able to use that as, like, clout to become a cop again. <laughs> which is, like, no a sense. reach. But at least there was something, you know? Yeah. And, like, the McGill Fellowship shit made sense. The Simple Plan, getting the CD to Simple Plan shit made sense. It, again, kind of felt like something I would make up, but, like... I was fine with yeah. it. Um, the so stuff about how the stuff about how to find an A and R person was really funny. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. <laughs> it felt very of the time, which it was yeah. fun. I thought that the guy in the bodega who interacted with uh, Roxy while the other girl was in the bathroom was really hot. <laughs> Just this feels like a very random choice, but I appreciate that. I thought the running joke of, like, the business guy that they kept, like, encountering yeah. was really yeah. funny. And that was it. That was what I appreciated. Oh, but I did have a question for the culture, as they say, which is, how do Mary-Kate and Ashley decide who's going to play who? And another question, which is, wasn't one of them, like, the sporty one and one of them, like, the dancer one in, like, their yeah, branding I in general? I think that was... Yeah, it was for their branding. I have no clue if any of that actually bears weight to who they are. Yeah. It, it, it might not. It probably doesn't. Probably doesn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I wondered, like, do they flip a coin? Do they uh, both try reading it and see who does it better? It feels really arbitrary. That is something I'm curious That's about. because it is. <laughs> yes. Okay, so how do we even begin to dive into I mean, what is bad or problematic? I have, you know, a list for worse now. Okay, you go first. Okay, so first of all, right off the bat, we've got Dead Mom Exposition. Yes. That does not exist. You know, it, it actually does exist for a reason because it's the wedge between them. It's the wedge between the, the twins and that that comes to a head. Like, that's the that's the actual emotional climax of, of it. But you, um, you, you really don't have to walk past a picture frame of your dead mom and say, I miss you. <laughs> you really don't. You really don't have that. That doesn't have to be her first line. No, it's just, it's not necessary. Like, you can express it in other ways. Yes. Um, and then I really felt like we don't need Eugene as a character and Andy as a character. Yeah, I agree. It's like one of them was supposed to be causing more trouble for one and the other was supposed to be causing more trouble for the other. 
but it didn't really I, work out that way. It didn't work out that way. It didn't feel it didn't feel like they had their own villains. No, it didn't at um, all. So it didn't work. And also Andy's entire subplot and that entire subplot should have been X'd out and gotten rid of a long, long, long time before they made this movie. Yeah. Um, which we like, we can go into more. But yeah, I don't think that both of those characters needed to exist. Um, I also think that the... Probably the marketing and, like, the storyline that was portrayed through the trailer did not help the marketing of the movie and did not help the success of the movie. What, why would we want, do we want to see Mary-Kate and Ashley in New York City? Yes. <laughs> but we don't, we don't want to see them, like, running from weird men. We want to see them discovering their passions, finding a crush, you know, like we want to see them, ha you know, maybe get, um, you know, a fashion line or something yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like something that so is closer to them because you see the poster and like how iconic that would be. But mm. when you watch the trailer, it's like, oh, I actually don't give a crap about the storyline. And it's yeah. so random. The whole thing is incredibly random. And I wish that they had just taken all the elements and reasons as to why we loved Mary-Kate and Ashley content and infused it into this final blow. <laughs> this final cinematic statement. What Aww. they have provided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am really like sad i'm like emotional at this speech like i want i want that too like why did it have to be like a weird caper movie with like every like you just watch them be stressed and looking bad for most of it and it's like that's yeah. not what we like no that's not what that's never why we enjoyed their content. So no. I think that they were really led astray with this screenplay. And I think if they had done it right and played their cards right, it could have gone really differently. And they could have starred in more movies after. Ugh. If they wanted to. I don't think they wanted to. But that was yeah. like a harrowing address that you just gave. Like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> I didn't actually really fully understand who Eugene's character was until 50 minutes in. <laughs> oh my God. And I think it's because it wasn't completely clear to me. He seems like he is the principal of the school or something, but you see his little like weird apartment and you're like, oh, he's definitely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's not until actually 50 minutes in that the word truancy is used. That's not true. Really? They say it in the very beginning. Oh, well, Here's I, the thing, it, it didn't hit me. I will say in this movie, if you don't pay attention for like 20 <laughs> seconds, you're kind of <laughs> You fucked. miss it. You're yeah, kind you of done. Good luck. Yeah. Like, I have um, no, I'm sorry. I have no idea how the Gilmore Girls guy showed. Like, did she know him before? I actually don't know either how he showed up. I was like, all of a sudden we're in this senator's son apartment yeah, and I, I have no clue. How. I feel like they got into that whole senator subplot in like six seconds. Like, I looked away for yeah. one second and then I was like, how are they even here? Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't tell you. 
um, which is not a good sign yeah. when you're when you're. <laughs> You know, obviously we've got two love interests here, one for each of them. But when when they show up with at least the other one had multiple run ins. And the whole thing was that they kept running into each other, which what a, what a trope that is just beaten to the ground. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't care about either of them. That was another note I had was the boys are very irrelevant. Yeah. Um, and. That's not fair to this movie. That's not, that's not what we would have wanted. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't like fully concentrated on anything. It wasn't fully concentrated on the rift between the sisters because of their mom. It wasn't fully concentrated on the education, like how the one twin wants education and the other twin wants like a record deal. It wasn't concentrated on that. It wasn't concentrated on the boys you know, and like the crushes. And so it wasn't concentrated on anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, it Um, wasn't. It was kind of concentrated on like getting the day planner back. Like I thought that was kind of fine, but yeah. I mean, that was their only concrete goal. Yeah. Um, And then also the (laughs) trope of in the lowest of the low moment, when you when one walks around and sees what they lack yep yep yep. so they're literally just walking around seeing like random girls and like families and they're like oh like (laughs) it was so bad it was so bad (laughs) so bad i have a couple really nitpicky things just to start with which is um, there was a lot of really bad Photoshop in the pictures in yeah, their house. I wrote that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like horrible, like absolutely horrible. Do they spend all the budget on the on-location shooting? Probably. They couldn't <laughs> get a reasonable Photoshop person to do the shit. There was so much funny stuff in the beginning, like when they're in the house and there's like this really unnecessary cover. I think it's a cover of War. Yeah. I'm like, this is just the perfect first, like, white person fuck up, like, for this to be the song that's playing. Like, why is this the song? Um, I thought that the line where the, where uh, (laughs) Roxy's like, I'm going to a play, like, Shakespeare in the park. And they're, like, talking about that. And then the dad's like, mom would be so proud of you. I'm like, why would mom be proud of her for going to see a play? (laughs) Going on a field trip. (laughs) Literally, I was like, this is so heavy handed. The standards are that low for Roxy at this yeah, point in her life. I guess that is true. I also thought that it was really annoying that, and Audrey kind of pushed back on this, but like the whole movie is like they're seniors because um, Jane is trying to get this scholarship and like this admission to this fancy college. And then meanwhile, the dad is like threatening Roxy with like a private school reformatory for girls the whole time. And it's like, are you going to enroll her in the reformatory for girls for like just the second half of her senior year? Like what's the, what's the idea? So I was confused by that. Um, I was extremely uncomfortable through a lot of this movie, but one of the parts that made me super uncomfortable, which normally I would put it in problematic, but because there's so much in problematic, I put it in bad, which is when the Gilmore Girls guy walks into his apartment and it suddenly becomes this weird, like, allusion to, like, 
porn like where he walks in and then Roxy's on the bed in a towel and her it it gets like slow motion and it's like hey baby hey baby hey and she like flips her hair and then the other girl the other sister comes in and he's like whoa is it my birthday it's like Ew. Ew. Why was that <laughs> a thing he said? And also, why did they continue to entertain his ass if that was the first yeah. thing he said? That just did not track for me. <laughs> I thought also in that scene where they're tossing the dog back and forth, you can literally see that it's like a limp stuffed animal and <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> was funny and uh, also when they end up landing in the dumpster because they do in fact fall from scaffolding into a dumpster there's a part where like they're they're like peeking up over the dumpster and then they like scoot over like they like shimmy their way out of the dumpster but the dog is in between them and the dog moves on like a perfect <laughs> horizontal plane and you just know there was someone in that dumpster like holding the dog and like dragging it like across the screen I just thought that was so funny and uh the amount that this dog had to go through it had to have been so sedated to get through this shit I was like this poor dog I'm concerned about this dog and I was also super annoyed that she got the fucking fellowship after all of that it was such a reach that's what I I literally was so offended by that I put it in problematic (laughs) (laughs) it is bad she fucks up so thoroughly and still gets the scholarship. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this is this is uh, the height of privilege. <laughs> um, it really is. That's such a good point. Okay, speaking of the height of privilege, shall yeah. we get into the problematic elements of this movie? Yeah. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yike. No, like, actually... There isn't a plot line of this movie that isn't offensive in some way. Um, We've got Andy Richter, who is a character that believes he's Chinese. um, Because I think what they're saying is that he he was, like, adopted by a Chinese mother. And so he's, like, grown up in Chinatown. That's kind of what they're saying yeah but I don't think it's that he thinks he's Chinese I think it's that he speaks well he does literally speak with this Chinese accent and I guess the implication is that he would talk like that because he like has grown up in Mm -hmm. a Chinese family which doesn't make any sense no because you're in New York yeah and like he's speaking English so like obviously you're gonna hear a lot of New York accents too and you're gonna hear you know it it doesn't make complete sense um at all and also it's all played for a punchline which is the real you know problem like extreme issue with this and it kind of reminds me of like Freaky Friday it's sort of similar to what they've got going on in Freaky Friday um but honestly so much worse and it reminds Mm me of um (laughs) thoroughly modern really (laughs) It it reminded me of that, too. Uh, Which, if you don't know, is a musical where you have... Well, okay. I don't know if in the Broadway version they actually casted Asian people, did they? Yeah. Thoroughly Modern Millie is this musical. It's set in the 20s. We did it in our high school. Um, Our high school somehow managed to do, like, almost exclusively 
all white shows with characters of color. So the amount of problematic shit that our high school did literally never ends. Anyway, um, in Thoroughly Modern Millie, the antagonist of the show is this woman named Mrs. Mears, who is like a white lady in yellow face. And um, literally. And like she has these like henchmen that are like actual Chinese people um, or like Mandarin speaking actors at the very least. But yeah, this movie had elements of that certainly yeah it has flavors of that and we forgot to say that when we did it in our high school the people who were speaking mandarin were white so it was like like the antagonist was in intentionally bad yellow face and the other people were supposed to be in like passable yellow face it was just a mess it was a mess it's a complete mess and also like both in this movie and in our high school production of Thoroughly Modern Millie, the language <laughs> was butchered. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they're butchered. There is a scene where um, Jane and Andy Richter speak. Ma- I mean, I think it's Mandarin. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, we do. Um, and it is really excruciatingly it's bad. really white sounding. Yeah, I was like, this is this is bad. Yeah. Um. And not only do we have that whole situation, but we also have the cursed, extremely cursed salon sequence um, uh, in this movie. It's like it's like if they created the most offensive cursed version of the bend and snap scene. Like yeah. it's just it's a uh, very much playing on a trope of you know we've got black characters who sort of transform these little white girls and are like fairy godmothers you know yeah. it's like the most dumbed down version of this archetype of like the magical black person who like shows up and like solves all the problems of the white character and like really only exists to solve their problems these like overly folksy wise black characters that show up and like solve everyone's problems and like don't have their own plots going on and the context of it in this movie is like shit's looking real bad for mary kate and ashley they look (laughs) bad they're really in a tough position they gotta get this speech to the place in columbia and they like accidentally end up on the wrong side of manhattan they go like 100 it's like 125th street harlem oh yeah yeah um but it's like really heavy-handed and then they go in and it is Audrey described it so well it is like a super cursed bend and snap where it's like if you're Mary Kate and Ashley and you walk in to a black beauty shop and first of all are so visibly scared that's already bad yeah and then on top of that like the fact that all the women in there are like Oh, we'll take care of you. It's fine. And then they do this whole makeover montage, which honestly, though, I have to say the level of awkwardness that (laughs) Mary Kate and Ashley possess in that scene is like, if you watch that out of context, you would think that you were like on drugs. (laughs) It's so uncomfortable. There's a part of it that's like kind of really entertaining because like the makeover aspect of it is cool or like fun to watch, but it's like so like steeped in just aggressive stereotypes that you're like this can't be anything other than just like a blemish on this yeah it's it's just not (laughs) and you know interesting that their final looks are what they are like yeah 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 the final looks they both have like that straightened hair layers thing yeah (laughs) you know what i'm talking about and uh 
it's sort of like a dulled down version of the outfits they had on before. Yeah. And it's like, oh, so this movie is just one million percent aware of what's going on. They, this is not there's nothing about this is them not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. They they and, are operating within these confines, you know. Yeah. And again, this goes back to what Audrey said at the very beginning, where she said the line about a more corporate bling because yeah. the, the place is called House of Bling and like the main hairdresser like gets one of the girls seated. It's Jane. And she's like, oh, like, I'm going to make you look great. And she was like, what do you mean? And the lady's like, it's House of Bling, duh. Like, what do you think? And then Jane is like, I'd prefer a more corporate bling. And it's like, okay, that's actual just overt racism. Yeah. It just is um, really extreme. Yeah. It's really extreme. And, it's it's and also... Can't... It's treated like a like their stop in Emerald City a little bit. Right. But, like, it just is really... It's it's a blemish so bad that you cannot, at the end of the day, claim that this movie is good. Yeah. No. I, well, I no. Well, you can't even you can't even make the case that it's like worth. This kind of kind of goes into our next thing, which is you can't really even make the case that it is worth rewatching or showing yeah. to kids that are like thirteen now because it's so egregiously horrible. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. There's so many other Mary-Kate Nashley movies that are um, totally harmless and um, actually fun to watch that you could show your child if you really wanted to. Right. Or like Kids You Babysit or like Your Cousins yeah. or something like that. And it's just, I think it's also another really good example of how when these like stars try to make the leap from tween star to adult star and they just cannot do it right or they can't do it yeah. without like incurring harm for the sake of being like edgy yeah um that's what this movie gives me <laughs> yeah and and it does the whole thing has that feeling too of like uneasiness yeah and like no comfort like there's just nothing there's nothing there's no heart at the end of the day to like hold on to because you can tell that they're not Yep. comfortable yep. Yep. you can tell that the writing's not comfortable and like they don't even probably really want to be there at all so yeah they yeah they seem like really advanced androids yeah like they're movie. running on autopilot yeah yeah, which <sighs> I think, you know, I when I first watched this, I was like, honestly, I kind of want to back away slowly and not cover this because it's such a train wreck. And like, I don't necessarily want to, like, call attention to this movie right. um, in any way. But there are there is something to be gleaned from it, both from the perspective of, you know, for all the Mary-Kate and Ashley nerds out there, like mm -hmm. it, it is. A, a moment in their career for sure for the worse yeah um, it's and you know uh, a huge reflection of the the cultural moment of 2004 you know in a bad way yeah well I think it's also just another really important and it sounds so stupid when I'm like really important but like this stuff was peddled and consumed by so many of us like we always talk about how it feels like we were all raised by the same people because we all watched yeah. all these movies so much and it's like if you're white 
and you watch this movie and you ingest it, like you don't even understand that you are like literally eating like a spoonful of like white supremacy, like as you're watching it. But it is, it's like the way that every non-white character is used as like looking stupid or like a resource. It's just like really gross. And also imagine like if you were like the only Chinese girl in your group of white friends or like the only black girl in a group of white friends, like this movie like, would be so trash and alienating. Yeah. yeah and, it's um, horrible. you know, I would like that to be one of the main takeaways of this podcast in general, too. Mm-hmm. Like if you do rewatch the things that we talk about and you're white, like just think about uh, what was internalized and ingested through these movies because it it can't really be um overstated how much white supremacy is like fed to you without ever you know being outright racist yourself like Mm -hmm. saying things you know what I mean yeah totally and it makes me it's a mentality yeah and I actually think that it's kind of a good tool for like people that like white people white girls especially who haven't like come to terms with really thinking about their racial identity as a white person it's like a lot of the stuff that's happened over the past year like just conversations with other white people like a lot of white people will not like admit that they have like ingested white supremacy over time because they feel like they have to be admitting that they are explicitly racist and that they are like inherently a bad person because of that. But it's like, there are structures that have fed this to us, including Dual Star Incorporated. And it's like, (laughs) you have to own it to like get anywhere. And And the reason why it's a good tool is because like, we've all seen this stuff. It's not just in like domestic terrorism that you see racism like this it's not like it's just like the worst case scenario is where racism exists it's everywhere yeah and also this movie is really well timed for us to do in light of everything that happened in Atlanta a few weeks ago and with this whole conversation that is like finally being noticed by white people about anti-Asian hate like this is a good example of the shit we were fed it's a great example and so is Confessions of a Teenage or no and so is Freaky Friday Mm -hmm. um it's just food for thought Give it, give it a thought is all we are saying. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that that conversation and reflecting on that is, uh, is the worthwhile thing to do. Yeah. Like if you do rewatch it, rewatch it with that lens, if you will. Yeah. I still wouldn't say it's good or worth rewatching, but if you want to do it anyway, that would be the angle with which to take it, I would say. Otherwise, there's lots of great Mary Kate and Ashley content. Yeah, I said to Audrey, have problems like this. I cannot wait to do um, Billboard Dad switching goals. Cannot wait for both of those because they're so yeah. good. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, we really went there, but it needed to be it needed to be said. <laughs> we so. we could not cover this movie without going there. It would no. be a disservice. Yeah, no, it would be really horrible. So anyway. That's that. <laughs> XOXO. Gossip girl. That's all we have to say, I think. <laughs> That's it. Follow us on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> at Sleepover Cinema. And shop a- at Alien Brett. Yes, please do. Please do. Okay, we're actually going to go now. Okay, see you next week. Okay, bye. See you next bye. week. Bye.
You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with all our latest creative projects at twopinkpictures.com. If you want to watch our show as well as listen, we're on YouTube too. Yay. Search sleepover cinema or go to the link tree in our Instagram bio. We're on Instagram and Twitter at twopinkpictures and would love to hear from you there. We're also on TikTok at sleepover cinema and that's really where the party is at. It's true. And if you like Sleepover Cinema, please share an episode with a few friends. Also, since we're asking for things, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, edited, and engineered by us, Hannah and Audrey Leach. Sleepover Cinema is mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman, and theme music is by Josh Perlman Hall. Special thanks to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and David Moss. We'll chat again soon. We'll chat again soon. (laughs) You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.